There's a building near where I work that looks from the outside much like any other in central London. It's large, white stone, and decorated with a row of carved statues. It's some sort of government ministry, and I've been told that inside it's all columns and arches and portraits of Victorian generals. But it's rumoured that this building also contains a dark secret. That somewhere inside there's some sort of forbidden room. But who knows? No one has any idea what takes place there. It's said that it's where things get concealed, where secrets are kept secret. One of those secrets is the tale of a missing person who disappeared almost 70 years ago, a diver on a Cold War spying mission. And the events that unfolded after that day in 1956 will take us on a journey into a world of rogues, royalty, spies and lies. A journey that takes us right through to the present day. This story is one of the great unsolved mysteries of the 20th century. It's so sensitive, so secret, that there are people out there still covering up the truth. And I'm going to find out why. It all begins with a man named Malik. Oh, you've made it. Hello, Hooray. Commander Malik. <laughs> Commander Julian Malik, ex-Navy, dapper, one of those old-fashioned gents who always wears a tie, even when pottering around in his garden shed. Tea or coffee for you. I've been searching for someone like Commander Malik for the better part of 20 years. You see, he's quite possibly the last living link to this unsolved mystery. Commander Malik was a Navy diver before he retired, had adventures all over the world, diffusing mines underwater, that sort of thing. And his heroes were the great wartime divers. I was thrilled and fascinated by the stories of men, principally in the war, who went off and did extraordinarily brave and interesting jobs underwater. It was enormously exhilarating. And this is why I've come, to quiz Commander Malik. I'm a writer and historian. I love digging out forgotten stories from the past, ones buried deep in the archives. And I've come across some remarkable stories in my time. The doctor who supplied Hitler with cocaine, the MI6 spy who helped kill Rasputin. But this story, I've never come across anything quite so strange. It concerns a diver named Lionel Buster Crabb. Special Ops, wartime hero, was highly decorated. This was a man who was awarded a George Medal for great gallantry. One of his greatest acts of bravery was in wartime Venice. The Nazis had planted mines all along the Grand Canal. Crab diffused a lot, saving Venice from destruction. And so he became a household name, was even said to have been the inspiration for James Bond. He was certainly a close friend of Ian Fleming, author of the Bond thrillers. They worked together throughout the war. And one day in 1956, Lionel Crab agrees to undertake a top secret mission, spying for MI6, 
spying on a Soviet warship moored in Portsmouth Harbour. It's on the south coast of England, home to the Royal Navy. And the stakes, they couldn't have been higher, because this was the height of the Cold War, and it involved our communist enemy, the Soviet Union. And that dive, Lionel Crabbe was never seen again. His disappearance, it was the start of an extraordinary roller coaster of a story that's dark, shocking, and disturbing. And this picture of Crab then is almost exactly three years. So ago. I'm at Commander Malik's house because he's got something to tell me while he still remembers it all. Something that takes us closer than ever to the Lionel Crab mystery. You see, Malik met someone who was actually there on the day of Crab's secret MI6 dive in the spring of 1956, who was an eyewitness to everything that happened. I said, what? You know, tell me about it. And so he told me the story. I was really bowled over. And to be perfectly honest, at that time, I wasn't entirely sure whether he wasn't pulling my leg. He recounted that Crab had gone off into the murky waters of Portsmouth. Where was he? So what happened to Lionel Crabbe? There's plenty of theories. Did he simply drown? Had he been killed? That's what his closest diving mate claimed. And there were other theories. People said he went to Russia. He had arranged that he was going to defect. Some believed he'd been kidnapped by the KGB. That's what his niece said. She thinks he was abducted, yes. Others say he was working for the CIA, that there was some sort of cover-up. There's so many unanswered questions and only one certainty, that in the spring of 1956, Lionel Crabbe went missing. What happened next has been concealed for decades. It's been kept quite literally a state secret, and it's still shrouded in mystery. Normally, files are released after 20 years, but the files that reveal what happened to Lionel Crabbe, they're being blocked for a century, a hundred years. They've been embargoed, kept under lock and key. Why? Why is the information embargoed? I asked Malik if he has any idea. I simply don't know. I simply don't know. And nor for the moment do I but I intend to find out. I'm Giles Milton, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up Season 1, Ministry of Secrets. Episode 1, A Man Named Malik. I first stumbled across the story of Lionel Crabbe nearly 10 years ago when I was browsing through the shelves of the London Library, a place where I do all my writing. I found an old book about Crabbe's wartime heroics and the whole Crabbe story. It turned out to be so intriguing that it ended up as a short chapter in one of my books, Fascinating Footnotes from History. When I was researching it, I discovered a ton of strange theories about Crabbe's disappearance but it was pretty hard to work out which were true and which were fiction. 
I couldn't find any concrete answers to what actually happened. And so I ended my story. To this day, the disappearance of Lionel Crabbe remains one of the last great secrets of the Cold War. I want to find out which of these series stands up. I want to know what really happened to him and if there is an ongoing cover-up and why. So let me tell you what I do know about Lionel Crabbe. If you type his name into Google, you'll find a ton of stuff. Black and white photos of him smoking and smiling, with the sea in the background and the sun in his eyes. He's short, distinctive nose, bushy eyebrows, and he's got ruffled brown hair. He's wearing his diving kit, and to my eyes he's looking pretty cool, especially as he's about to investigate an underwater disaster. Pathé News brings you exclusive pictures of Commander Crabbe and his colleagues at work on that tragic day. Here is Crabbe himself preparing for a dive to the doomed submarine. There's also articles and blog posts and websites with names like laststandonzombieisland.com and loads of homespun podcasts. But none of these get to the truth about Lionel Crabbe. And the professionals, those who probably do know what happened to him in 1956, ex-spies, intelligence folk, they're strangely reluctant to talk, even off the record. I asked one very senior intelligence agent, who I'd been put in touch with through a friend of a friend, and this is his email reply, voiced up by an actor. I bear the scars of numerous attempts to get the lawyers to let us open the files. I've simply concluded that life is too short. That was his polite way of telling me to sod off. It's like there's a wall of silence about the man, the mystery, the dive. Until that is, I met Commander Malik, the retired Royal Navy diver. As part of my work, I get invited to give talks about my books, and that's how I ended up in the village of Droxford, near Portsmouth. It's as English as a cucumber sandwich. There's a village pub or two, and a quaint old church. They say they would like to help, and they have the most extraordinary story to tell. One of the men... So I did my talk. Thank you again very And then there was a plate of lasagna and a couple of glasses of Shiraz. And that's when I ended up sitting next to Commander Malik. He's late 70s, blazer and tie, polished shoes. And we get talking and Malik tells me he's an ex-Royal Navy diver, did a lot of diving in Portsmouth Harbour way back when. And so I ask him, does he know the Lionel Buster Crab story? And he looks at me and he says, yes, actually, he does know the story. And then he tells me straight off that you'd never call him Buster to his face because he'd swing a fist at you and punch your lights out. And then he adds something that really gets me going. He tells me he knew Lionel Crabbe's diving partner, a bloke called Frankie Franklin. And he grilled Franklin for stuff about Crabbe. And amazingly, Franklin had opened up, told him all he knew. And I could have talked to him all evening, Commander Malik, but he was among friends and everyone wanted to chat with him. And that was almost that. But I went to find him again at the end of the evening, cornered him, said I'd love to talk more. 
this was just too big an opportunity to be missed. And so he gives me his card and he turns to me, and I can't remember exactly what he says, but it's something like, this is not just a story about the past, and it's not just a story about a lost diver. It's also a story about the present. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you remember that place, that pub we used to go to on, um, which one was it on, was it near Portobello? This is my old yeah. producer friend Sarah. Sarah Peters, an old radio hand, ex-BBC, and far more importantly, my oldest friend. Sarah and I have known each other since we were 16, went to school together, went to university together. We go back a long way. I've got to tell you about what happened the other day because I was doing a talk on my book. I tell Sarah all about the Lionel Crab mystery. So I went down to this village where they, they invited me down. How Commander Malik may be the last living link to Crab himself. He says, yeah, he used to be a diver. He did loads of dives. In and Sarah, she's already hooked. I want to come with you on the trip to meet Malik. Can I come along? Because there's nothing she likes better than a scandal. And she thinks it's the perfect story for a podcast. We want to shed some light on that process, and I think it's very opaque still. Yeah, yeah. It's, in fact, it feels incredibly contemporary, actually. It's such a fantastic story. But it's also bizarre and unsettling. I mean, who's keeping it secret and why? You know, and actually, I've just made me more and more think that we are really on to something here. Brilliant. OK. Well, well, let's talk face again, if not before, in a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. All right, see Just a short time after I met Commander Malik in Droxford, I found myself seated in Malik's living room, all fluffed up armchairs and floral curtains. And there's a huge unfinished Van Gogh jigsaw on the dining room table. And I've come with my producer friend Sarah, who's brought along a huge furry microphone that looks a bit like a dead cat. We've got a water theme here, though, which is in keeping. <laughs> yes. I try and do one or two a year in the spring when it's cold and miserable outside. And then he gets chatting about the old days, tells us how divers, they're a tight-knit group, drink together, socialise together. The vast majority of them were people to whom I could relate and who I liked, mm. and I think that's what it was. And that's how, one evening at a Navy dinner, Malik came to meet Frankie Franklin, the one I mentioned earlier. 
He was Lionel Crabbe's diving buddy, the one who'd prepare him for each dive. And Frankie, he'd been happy to chat. The thing is, rumours about Crabbe's disappearance had been swirling around the diving community for years. What had happened to Crabbe? There was gossip, huge speculation. Everyone had a theory. And now, at this dinner, Malik's chatting with Frankie Franklin. And Frankie suddenly reveals something extraordinary. He said, uh, of course, I dressed Crabbe. What he means when he says, I dressed Crabbe, is that Frankie Franklin got Lionel Crabbe ready for that clandestine dive in Portsmouth Harbour. He was there on that morning, helped Crabbe into the water. Just like Crabbe, Franklin had been a diver during the Second World War. But by 1956, he was based at a secret diving station in Portsmouth. And one day, Crabbe called him up and said... Could he help him on a mission that was top secret? And he, Frankie, wasn't to tell anyone. And Frankie agreed. And the story of this diving mission we're about to hear, it's where the whole mystery begins. Dawn is breaking, but the harbour's still quite dark. Shrouded in mist, and into that early morning gloom creep two men, Lionel Crabbe and Frankie Franklin. He helped Crabbe into the dockyard and he had borrowed a launch. A launch. It's a small type of boat. And once they're in the boat, shivering from the chill, Franklin helps Crabbe into his rubber wetsuit. They do the all-important safety checks, the final check on the oxygen. Making sure it doesn't leak, making sure all the valves are tight. They whisper something, check their watches, give each other the thumbs up. And then, with Franklin's help, Crab swivels himself onto the edge of the boat. Crab swims downwards, feels his way along the bottom. He can't see a thing because the water's dark and murky and it's almost completely silent down there. What you notice is the pressure in your ears, first of all. So you have to clear your ears because it presses on the eardrums as you go down. So Crab's deep underwater and he's cleared his ears, but Portsmouth Harbour's a dangerous place to dive. There's swirling currents, shipping coming in and out, and a ton of detritus, old fishing nets, rusty wire. But the worst thing about Portsmouth Harbour is the mud. And so we got used to the idea of being in opaque mist and being cold. Crab, he's got oxygen for an hour and a half. 90 minutes. Whatever Crab's doing down there, he's got 90 minutes to do it. So Frankie Franklin, he's waiting on the surface. And so he would have been keeping account on his watch. And when that time went, and then he didn't come back, if I had been the supervisor of this dive, I would have been really very worried. Where was he? 
By this point, Frankie Franklin is getting worried because here he is overseeing a top secret mission with the country's most famous diver. And Lionel Crabbe has not reappeared. And then after two hours, I mean, what was Frankie thinking? He went back and he told his boss in Portsmouth. And then the fat was really in the fire. It was clear to Franklin and to everyone else that Lionel Crabbe would not be coming back. Ever. And this was going to be a huge shock because one of the nation's wartime heroes had just disappeared. Commander Malik thought a great deal about how the next few hours must have panned out. The hushed conversations, the growing panic. He must have told his bosses, Sir, I've been supervising Crab. Where is he? Well, he hasn't come back. He was in a dive in the dock. What? We better go and see the commander. So they would have gone to the commander, and then the chief of staff, and then the commander of the fleet, and then the admiralty in London. And at each stage, there would have been the growing sense that this was very bad news indeed, a massive embarrassment and a public relations catastrophe. Because what was he doing down there? I asked Commander Malik what would have been going through Frankie Franklin's mind as the terrible truth dawned. I think if one of my divers didn't come back, it would haunt me forever. That conversation with Franklin, it certainly preyed on Malik. It went round and round in his head. He couldn't let go of it. And then one day, Malik finds out something interesting. The National Archives storehouse of government documents on the edge of London have released some papers about Lionel Crabbe's disappearance. So I wrote to the National Archives and they came back with, these, with all the papers here. He leads Sarah and me over to a table where there's a few files and some photocopied memos. And really this is where I formed my opinions. And it's got various files. You see, these are copies of the Admiralty, Admiralty papers. Uh, the nice buff file under there. There's also reports about his disappearance from Chief naval intelligence, intelligence, memos on how government ministers should respond to the media, what they can say and what they can't. And the more I look through these papers, the more suspicious it all seems. I mean, this was a huge news story at the time, a famous wartime hero gone missing in suspicious circumstances. It involved MI6, and it was some sort of secret diving mission with a Soviet ship during the Cold War. And so you'd expect a massive file. But on Commander Malik's desk, there's only a handful of papers. And most of all, these papers don't answer any of my questions. Like, what was Lionel Crabbe doing in Portsmouth Harbour? What exactly were his links to MI6? And what the hell happened to him? I mean, why wasn't he simply reported dead as soon as he went missing? So why are the key Lionel Crabbe documents still being kept secret more than 70 years after he went missing? Commander Malik tells me it's all very strange. They then started this extraordinary cover-up. He reckons that just a matter of days after Lionel Crabbe went missing, someone 
at the very centre of power, began blocking the release of information, deliberately feeding fake news to the press, preventing anyone from getting to the truth of what actually happened. And then, well, it all spun out of control. Lie followed lie followed lie. Why? And once you stop one lie, there's another and another and another. Remember the 100-year embargo on the story of Lionel Crabb? How the official papers won't be released until 2057? It begs the question, who's holding them? The answer to that lies on a single street in the heart of London that runs between Trafalgar Square and Parliament Square. It's called Whitehall. And it's been the centre of power for centuries. It's not just elected politicians you'll find there. It's the entire machinery of government, civil service, defence, intelligence. This is Whitehall here. We've got the House of Parliament and Big Ben behind us. And then there's this road that it's just, it's wide. It's, it's just flanked by massive kind of imposing ministries, basically. Look at it, it's, it's huge facade. It's white sandstone. It's all columns and pillars and statues and, and friezes and everything. And it's, it's a very, very grand building. And it stretches pretty much as far as the eye can see. You really have to crane your neck, don't you, to look up to see the top of the building. It's so tall and imposing. I mean, what's amazing is that all these ministries, they're all within a, you know, a few hundred metres of each other, basically. So you, uh, you've got the Foreign Office, you've got the Ministry of Defence, you've got Downing Street, which is where the you know, Prime Minister lives and where the Cabinet meets. Um, they're all here. This is the absolute sort of centre of political power in this country. It's all within a very, very short radius. Yeah, all on this one road. The thing about Whitehall is that it's not just a place. It's also where decisions are made, where plots are hatched, where secrets are concealed. And when it comes to investigating Lionel Crabbe, how do you research a story that Whitehall doesn't want you to know? One thing we do know, those embargoed papers have been held under lock and key for years. I want to find out who, today, is still blocking them from seeing the light of day. And why? What can be so sensitive about them after all this time? I've done a ton of historical research over the course of my career. Archives, unpublished memoirs and diaries, that sort of thing. But I've never covered stories that involve people in the here and now. Sarah, it turns out, is already on the case. She suggests we call a contact of hers, Rob Evans. He's an investigative journalist at The Guardian, exposer of secrets and general thorn in the side of everyone in power especially the royals, and their attempts to influence government ministers in a series of private letters. All the way through was always like, oh, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty dull stuff, there's nothing in there, you know. Well, if they're so fucking dull, just give them to us. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Rob just loves to game the system, dig out stuff he's not meant to know, and every victory sets him off laughing again. 
<laughs> so Sarah and I tell him what we know of Lionel Crab, how Britain's most celebrated diver vanished one morning while doing some mysterious dive, how it's impossible to get any official answers. And it turns out Rob knows a little bit about Crab. The weird thing is, is that there must be quite a lot of documents to do with the Buster Crab incident. He's right. There are some documents, the ones that Commander Malik showed us. But they were documents that didn't reveal very much at all. And there were suspiciously few of them. Rob reckons that Sarah and I are going to face a big problem. And that problem is, well, it's never easy to track down official records. I think you wrote a piece recently, just how it's become harder than ever. It's the essence of what the British are about. Do you know what I mean? It's like secrecy is a very British vice. It's like, oh, my God, yes, you can't know that because you don't know the full picture, old boy. You know, it's that type of thing, isn't it? You know, the great public don't have any say in this whatsoever, basically. No, no. That's why I salute your endeavour, because I think that, you know, the more that's known about this dusty old world, the better. Rob tells us that official documents are supposed to be sent from Whitehall to the National Archives in Kew in southwest London, in theory. But he also says Whitehall is completely chaotic. You know, it's all a world of randomness, really. And it's more sinister than that. Rob says that things in Whitehall go missing, things get lost, files get accidentally shredded. And what he says next amazes me. Only two or three percent of all documents make it from Whitehall to the National Archives. Only two or three percent of all documents make it to the National Archives. That means that 97% of all official documents are never seen by the public. And I'm not talking about mundane stuff, but documents that expose major scandals. And Rob tells me that even documents that do survive often end up being filed in the wrong place. The mistake that people make when they go down to the National Archives is they look at the obvious place, think, fuck, there's nothing there, go home. What is brilliant is when the, sy the system is not foolproof and you may get stuff slipping through. It's, it's just thinking laterally. When he talks about thinking laterally, what does he mean exactly? If I was sitting where you were, I'd be thinking, right, you know, the main avenue here is blocked. But that's not the end of the story because there's always information out there somewhere. It's just a way of finding it. Is that all very useful or not at all? <laughs> Have I just rambled on and told you things that you already knew about? <laughs> Rob says we've got a job on our hands because he's been told there's an elite group at the centre of Whitehall whose task is to conceal sensitive information from people like us. This group, they're a total mystery. Even to Rob himself, he says we should track them down, find out who they are, expose them. Because what can possibly be so secret about the Lionel Crab story? And why are they blocking the truth? Coming up on Ministry of Secrets.
the water is so muddy about this. And whichever book you read, you get a different story. I think you're going to struggle. This is all part of this, I wouldn't say the dark state, but certainly the secret world that no one really knows much about. There are things that I'm not allowed to tell you because I can't let you broadcast it. So you have to turn that off. Want the full story? Unlock all episodes of Cover Up Ministry of Secrets ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge. All episodes all at once. Plus, you'll unlock brand new stories dropping every month. That's all episodes all at once, all ad-free. Just click subscribe on the top of the Cover Up Ministry of Secrets show page on Apple Podcasts or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you listen. Find out more about The Binge and other podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com forward slash podcasts. Cover Up Season 1 Ministry of Secrets is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's hosted and written by me, Giles Milton. The producer is Sarah Peters. The junior producer is Martha Miller. The production coordinator is E.K. Egbitola. Peggy Sutton is the story consultant. Jeremy Wormsley composed the original music with mixing and sound design from Peregrine Andrews. Isis Thompson is the editor and executive producer. With thanks to actor Dominic Frisby and Tuning Fork Productions. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.